welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become more real to us so that we can draw more power from the scriptures because we need that power. I'm your host, Kerry Mulestein, and this is a special edition of the podcast. It's a joint broadcast with the Sunday on Monday podcast with Tammy Hall, sponsored by Deseret Book. I hope you enjoy it. When my family gets Chinese food, our favorite part of the meal is the fortune cookie. Now, if you're anything like my family, then you're going to probably love today's discussion of Proverbs because to me, some of the Proverbs read like fortune cookies with a religious undertone. And as we study Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, we get to learn about these two poetic books, why they are in scripture and what they have to teach us about Jesus Christ. Welcome to the Sunday on Monday study group, a desert bookshelf plus original brought to you by LDS living, where we take the column lesson for the week. And we really dig into the scriptures together. I'm your host, Tammy Uzalak Hall. And also welcome to the scriptures are real, a podcast uh, by your me, Carrie Mielstein, your uh, host for that podcast, where we look at elements of the scriptures that make them very real for us. And we're doing a joint podcast today. I'm so excited to be able to have this go to both of our, our uh, audiences as we discover, discuss and discover this together. Holla, it's going to be so good. I can't wait. Yeah. Good, and clean this, is Car- this is Carrie's brainchild, just FYI, because we met together and we talk- talked about some things and then he came up with this idea and I'm like, I love it. So <laughs> thanks for thinking of it, Carrie. This, this is fun. It should be good. Yeah, well, so for those of you who are listening and you're new to our study group, we just want to make sure you know how to use this podcast. So you can follow the link in our description, and that's going to explain how you can best use this podcast to enhance your Come Follow Me study. Just like my friends, and this is so fun, Emma Ellis and Gina Kemp, who I met at a Heber Valley Girls Camp when I spoke, and then Gina Kemp's good friend, Amy, Amy Starks, and they listen together, and they don't even live by each other, but they call each other throughout the week, and they talk about things that they learned on the podcast. So hi, ladies. Hi to all of you. Thanks for listening. Okay, now this is my favorite part of our podcast is that each week I'm joined by two friends. So you already heard one of my friends that's with us. It's Carrie Muelstein. And the other friend is Melinda Wilwright Brown. Hello, you two. Hey, Tammy (laughs) and Carrie. Great to be here with both of you. Yeah. We are excited about this because we get to talk about Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And I'm just really hoping that you can convert me to Ecclesiastes, you two, because I do not like that book. (laughs) We'll get there. We'll get there. Because Carrie says he likes it a lot, which doesn't surprise me. I'm like, I know Carrie's going to convince me this is a good book, right? (laughs) Here we go. Here we go. Totally. Um, This is kind of cool about my friends, though. They both are authors. And so Melinda Wilwright Brown is the author of the excellent book. I love it so much. Eve and Adam discovering the beautiful balance. And then Carrie Muelstein is the author of several books, but specifically the one you're going to want to know about for this year is learning to love Isaiah. So I cannot wait to use that when we get to Isaiah and Carrie's going to join us for the very last Isaiah episode. So if you haven't learned to love it by then, you will when he's on with us. (laughs) right another one where we'll get there right we're we're, we'll we'll make this happen we're gonna make this happen for sure so this is exciting if you want to learn more about my guests you can read their bios which are in our show notes at ldsliving.com slash sunday on monday so go there check it out find out all their fun information and read their books they're really good okay grab your scriptures your scripture journal something to mark with because we're just going to dive right in to the book of proverbs here we go Okay, you two, I, I had to start out the beginning with fortune cookies because for reals, when I taught this as a seminary teacher, I ordered a gigantic box of fortune cookies from a wholesaler and we would open them and eat them and we'd laugh. And then I'd tell my kids, all right, go into the book of Proverbs, any chapter, pick anything you want, scan through it and just yell out any kind of proverb that you think is fun, something because they'd never, ever studied the book of Proverbs before. And I kind of felt like they were fortune cookies with a religious undertone. Am I wrong? No, you're so right. Yes, they are so much fun to read. And so one of the things we're going to start out with is I asked my guests to come prepared to share maybe one of their, two of their favorite Proverbs, a fun one, and then a more serious one. So you guys got something for us? Yep. Yeah. Sure. We're going to start with you. Hit it, Melinda. What do you got? Okay. Well, let's see. One fun one that I think is great is from Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 8. And it says, go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. I just think that's kind of a fun one. The old story of the ant and the grasshopper, right? Oh, that's Um, good. Hold on. I got to mark that. Six, Proverbs 6, verses 6 through 8. 6 through 8. 
Yeah. And then um, you want my serious one now too, or should we hear Carrie's fun one first? Oh yeah. Carrie's fun one. Uh, all right. Actually, uh, you just gave one that I, I, I was considering, but oh. I decided to go into dangerous territory where I, I, I shouldn't go. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go to Proverbs 25 and we're just going to change it. it. It talks about uh, a woman, but I think this is true of, of anyone, male or female. Uh, oh, way so to be Proverbs safe, 25, 24. <laughs> yeah, well, it is dangerous, but um, 25, 24, <laughs> it is better to dwell in the corner of the housetop than with a brawling man or woman. I, I added the man there, but anyway, with, with a brawling man or woman in a wide house. And uh, it's <laughs> funny, and yet it's not, because we know that contention, like President Nelson's been talking about that, contention is no fun, but I just love the way they say it, like, I'd rather just live in a little teeny place with peace than in a big place where there's all sorts of fighting. So. I like that you chose yeah, well. that one. I Mine is the exact same. Well, it's kind of in the same camp. Go to Proverbs chapter 21. Because this mm. one always made me laugh. Verse 19. It is better to dwell in the wilderness than with yeah. a contentious and angry woman. And I'm just going to leave it right there at woman. Because amen. <laughs> <laughs> you better watch your steps. That's all I have to say. Or you're going to want to be living in the wilderness. So that one is sort of a warning. I love that. That cracks me up, that one. Uh, okay. Jenny, let's go into the ones we thought were serious. What are some of the ones you liked that affected you? Melinda, go ahead. Well, kind of... Uh, from what both of you just shared in 1714, I love this metaphor it makes of water going down a drain. It reads, the beginning of strife is as when one letteth out water, therefore leave off contention before it be meddled with. I think that's a great image of your water just trickling down the drain before you even realize it. You're just sitting there cold in your bathtub with no water <laughs> left. So, oh, I like contention that. fast. Yeah. Okay, that's a really good one. The so there's a theme that just tied all these together, right? Yeah, uh, just, yeah. And, contention and think, is brewing, yeah. I guess. Here, we're, I th we're think President it. Nelson would like this theme, uh, telling right. us get contention out of our lives. That's right. Oh, that's a good one, Melinda. I'm putting your name next to that. Hold, please. <laughs> I like to put people's names next to scriptures when they share them with me, so I can remember. That's the moment idea. when I taught at a women's prison for a while, I did that because we would have scripture shares oh, yeah. and um, women would share their favorite scriptures. Now that was fascinating. And oh, I would wow. write their name and I'd write the date and I'd write kind of a note, like what they were going through. A lot of them, it was parole. And so they just sought the Lord's help. A lot of Psalms actually were shared in the women's prison. So mm. anyway, that's a side note. Okay, go ahead, Carrie. All right, so I, I'm not going to do my very favorite scripture of all uh, in any scriptures, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, but I think everyone's going to do that all the time. So I, I chose one that's actually just a few verses after Melinda's. So we're still in 17, and this one is really meaningful to me. Uh, chapter 17, verse 17, a friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And uh, I've just seen that uh, in, in my life and in the lives of uh, my family members that, uh, you know, there are friends who are there when things are good. And then you've got those friends who are there when things are bad and they were born for adversity and they'll get you through that adversity. And sometimes they may not understand what you're going through and, uh, and wh what's happening, but they know it's hard and they're just there. And sometimes they don't need to do anything else but be there. But, but, but a, a brother or a sister and a, and a friend are there at all times and especially for adversity. And that has, that touches me because of my own experiences. Yeah, you have awesome. a, well, do you have a specific one that you could share? Um, yeah, I can share it. I've talked about it a little bit on, on my podcast already, but I, I have a friend uh, who recently shared with us something. He was kind of writing a little bit of a retrospective on his life and, and talked about a time when he was dealing with some serious depression. And uh, he was my roommate and uh, we'd been friends in middle school and high school and then in college. And uh, none of us really understood what he was going through. Uh, and sometimes we weren't even sure what we were supposed to do to help him. And I think depression was less understood uh, in the early 90s. But um, uh, we didn't really understand what he was going through. But we we just he was our friend. And so we just were there whenever we could be there. And and in his little thing that he wrote, he said, you know, he didn't realize how much uh, that got him through the fact that we didn't always know what to do, but it didn't matter to us and that we didn't always understand him, but it didn't matter that we are there and that that has uh, continues to help him through some hard times. And uh, I can't tell you, so, I mean, I, I've experienced 
my friends who have even very recently been uh, there for some very hard times for us, but uh, that same group. But uh, I, I think I was even more touched by hearing my friend 30 years later talking about um, how much that had meant to him when uh, it, it didn't seem that big of a deal to us. And we didn't realize what a big thing it was for him. It's a great example. Great example of that verse. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. Um, mine is, it is going to be Proverbs chapter 31 verses 10 through 31. And it's the <laughs> proverb of a virtuous woman because I've spent the last seven years of my life studying it in Hebrew. And for years, anytime I would teach the book of Proverbs, we would have this fun with the fortune cookies and the kids would call out different things. And then I would have them go to Proverbs chapter 31 and I'd have them mark it because this is the proverb of a virtuous woman. And every time I taught it, I would start out by saying, because the first thing, it, the first qualifier in verse 10 is that a virtuous woman who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies. And then verse 11, the heart of her husband does safely trust in her. And I would always say, I mean, I know I'm not married, but when I get married, I will be virtuous. And then look at all the things that I'm going to do. And I just went through verse by verse and kind of just made up what I don't, I don't really know. I mean, no one really, no one had ever developed this proverb. There was nothing we could go on in our manuals or teacher manuals. And so I would actually have students sometimes read a verse and say, tell me what you think this means. And when I did get married, I went back and read this proverb. Wow. I read it in Hebrew. And it, it's like that line in Princess Bride. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> and I had this incredible experience with it. And so I'll talk about that a little bit later. But specifically, what I think is so cool about this proverb is in verse one. In Proverbs chapter 31, verse one, it says, the words of King Lemuel, the prophecy that his mother taught him. And it's one of the only scriptures we have attributed to a woman. And I think that's pretty amazing. And so we have this mother teaching her son what to look for in a future wife. And um, it's going to be pretty profound when we get there, which I just love this proverb. So that's mine. Proverbs 31. Awesome. Yeah. We're going to have so much fun today. Yeah. So our challenge to you all, and those of you who are listening, go through Proverbs and find a fun one and a serious one. And you can even share them on social media. We would love that. Share the Proverbs that you are finding that either stand out to make you laugh, or if there's one that really touches your heart, and we'd love to know what they are. So today we are going to be studying Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, but here's something really interesting. These two books join three other books in the Bible and they're known as the poetic books of the Old Testament, but they also fall into a really cool category. Okay, I have been looking forward to this discussion ever since I knew the three of us were going to be here. So we are going to talk about this category that several books from the Old Testament belong to. And I've asked Melinda to teach us about this, and we'll discuss it, the three of us together. So Melinda, hit it. Okay, all right. This has been so fun to work on. I absolutely love wisdom literature, which is the category that you're describing here. Um, if you think of kind of different genres that are contained within the Old Testament, we have things like narrative, law, poetry, prophecy, and apocalyptic writings. And so wisdom literature is one of those, and there's some overlap with a lot of them. I mean, the nature of Hebrew is very poetic, so we feel this sense of poetry throughout a lot of the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible. But um, specifically, wisdom literature typically refers to the books of Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, as it is in the King James Version. Like the vowels, or sometimes Y is included, uh, some psalms are fall into the wisdom literature, but typically not all of them. Um, that's kind of a fuzzy category. One of the fun pieces about wisdom literature that's really interesting is that this is a genre that was happening in a broader sense than just in the religious realm. So in the neighboring um, cultures and communities around Israel, there was also wisdom literature being created like in Egypt and Mesopotamia. And so this was sort of like a trend in the time. And so the, these books sort of act almost as a response to what's happening in the cultures around them, which is kind of a, an interesting little piece of the story as well. And uh, the idea of what they're defining as wisdom, I think, is really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I think in the, in the spiritual sense, 
wisdom literature has to do with this sort of alchemized combination of knowledge, intelligence, and truth. And so it's this big idea that I kind of like to think of as sort of the way of Christ. Um, and in my studies of wisdom literature, the predominant theme that I feel comes out of it is that it's what living in a covenantal relationship with Christ looks like and feels like. And the poetry is great for that because poetry is so good at capturing our emotions and feelings. And so I think it's more than just illustrating what it looks like to live in a covenant relationship with Christ, but it really does help us feel it and uh, recognize the blessings that come with it and the challenges that come when we choose not to, because so much of the style of wisdom literature is parallelism, which shows lots of um, comparison between, well, if you don't do it, it feels like this. If you do do it, it feels like this. And as we know, that's how we learn. And so it's a super, super great way for learning. But one of my very favorite things about wisdom literature that I think is a fascinating way or lens, I should say, to read these books through is the idea of the difference between special revelation versus general revelation. Hmm. So if I can just explain briefly kind of the difference in that we receive lots of special revelation, particularly twice a year in conference weekend. Special revelation is like the words of the prophets and the things that come across the podium and are very precise and, and uh, excellent advice and counsel and guidance and that sort of direction. But general revelation is more the sense that in the entire order of the universe, we see God's hand at work and his design in things. Um, it reminds me of, there was a time many years ago that I remember one of my children um, giving me a little eye roll as we're so familiar <laughs> with, with our children, right? When I was, I can't even remember what we were doing, but we were out in nature and we were seeing something and I just was taking that opportunity to jump right to a gospel message. And I was saying, oh, look, this is just like <laughs> it with Jesus or whatever. And I remember this child said, oh, mom, you see Jesus everywhere. And um, I was kind of reflecting back on that as I was studying this recently, because I think that's really the point of this is that some of the Proverbs, especially, but also Ecclesiastes is good for this as well we're seeing what normal life looks like. So some people might read some of these and think, why does this need to be canonized? This is basic common sense, right? This isn't like church stuff. This is just life and this is obvious or whatever. But I think the bigger picture is that through all of it, we see divine design. And when we recognize that both general revelation and special revelation can weave together to really give us a complete whole sense of what the way of living in a covenant relationship looks and feels like. That's pretty awesome. So wisdom literature is actually some of my very, very favorite questions of the Hebrew Bible. I love that you came so prepared with that. Oh, because well, hope that helps. Well, it totally does. And, you know, here's a fun little exercise. If you have time on a Sunday, read Proverbs and highlight every time you see the word wisdom, and yeah. it is going to be a lot. And I was struck by this and Carrie, I have this question for you. What stood out to me was how many times the word wisdom is referred to as she in the female yeah. form. Tell me about that. Why do you think it is so in, in wisdom. the book of Mormon? Like you can cross-reference it with Mosiah chapter eight, verse 20. That verse specifically talks about mercy. And then it says, and she should rule over them, speaking of mercy. So tell us a little bit about that. So I, I think a couple elements of that. Uh, one is wisdom is a feminine noun, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, and but it's more than that in, in Proverbs because it does get personified as a woman. It's treated as if it is a woman. And no one tells us why, but my guess would be it's because for the most part, you learn these things from your mother, like you pointed out. King Lemuel learns this from his mother. That's where you, you learn the ins and outs of life. Of course, a lot of this is actually said as a father teaching his son. And we find that in, in Egypt, what the most common setting for this kind of wisdom literature is a father teaching his son. And yet I think in reality, most of the little wise things that, that you're taught, 
you're taught from your mother. Now, that's just my opinion. I don't really know why, but certainly in Proverbs, wisdom, with one exception, wisdom is a woman, and it's a woman to be revered and to follow and to develop a relationship with. Mm -hmm. Beautifully said. Thank you. That was an excellent discussion. And what I like about it is that for many of us, this is the first time we've heard of this wisdom literature. So I encourage those of you who are interested, study it, research it, Google it, learn everything you can, because it is just filled with so much goodness. And it is worthy of studying wisdom. In fact, the question that's asked at the beginning of Proverbs, you're going to want to mark this as you study the book of Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter four, verse 13, happy is the man that findeth wisdom and the man that getteth understanding. And then it will go through these verses and tell you about the importance of wisdom. And so seek wisdom, look for wisdom, find wisdom as you study the book of Proverbs. In fact, all of the wisdom literature. So excellent job, Melinda. Thank you. Thanks. All right, let's find out all we can then about the structure of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and what we need to know. So here we go. First of all, our questions are for Proverbs. Who wrote Proverbs? What is it about? When was it written? All that fun stuff. What do you got for us? Hit it, Carrie. So we don't know who wrote all the different Proverbs, right? It, most of them are attributed to Solomon. We even have in, in uh, 1 Kings 4, it says that Solomon wrote thousands of Proverbs. Uh, he's known for his wisdom. So there, uh, the majority of these are attributed to Solomon, and we're kind of inclined to take that. Although when it says a proverb of Solomon or these are or Solomon's Proverbs, that doesn't specify, did he write that or is this some he collected because he was someone who was interested in wisdom and was searching all this this wisdom, as as uh, Melinda told us, uh, wisdom literature was all over the place. It, it, we have great texts of wisdom literature in Egypt from even before Israel or, or Jacob was born, right? I mean, they've mm -hmm. been doing this for a long time, and a, and a lot of them are very similar. Um, so maybe Solomon's collecting them. I, I think a number of them he wrote. We have a couple that are attributed to specific individuals. You just brought us to the one with King Lemuel, although we don't know who King Lemuel is. Uh, we've got a guy named Agur. Uh, we don't know who they are, but uh, these are wise sayings that are attributed to them. So in the end, and I, I think you're right, there's something about saying, well, some of these are, are divinely inspired and some of these are just, yeah, that's good common sense. And in fact, a, a lot of them are so similar to uh, those in Mesopotamia or Egypt, a, a few of them we think that seems to be taken straight from this earlier wisdom text in, in Egypt. And great, uh, uh, why not pass on wise things, right? So some of them were inspired uh, specifically about Jehovah, and some of them are just ways to live. And uh, both are valuable. That That's the real difference, though, between wisdom literature uh, here with uh, Proverbs and wisdom literature in the other societies is that in Proverbs, it focuses on the fear of the Lord and on, on coming to God and learning from God rather than just as this is just how society functions. Most wisdom literature, well, what we'd call proverbial wisdom literature, there are two different kinds. One's proverbial, one's speculative. And we have two great examples here. Proverbs is proverbial. Uh, Ecclesiastes is speculative. That's where you're trying to figure out the meaning of life kind of, of uh, things. But um, <laughs> The, the proverbial stuff is really focused on the Lord in Israelite wisdom literature where it's not in other societies. And most of these seem to be from the inspired Solomon. I thought it was cool when you just said, because I wrote it down, some existing Egypt text. And you're an Egyptologist. You give tours in Egypt. You know you're Egyptian. Yeah. And so you're telling us that some of these proverbs, some of these proverbs already existed in the Egyptian culture and writings. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. There are wow. a number of them that are so similar. You just think, I mean, to some degree, all societies are going to figure out, okay, uh, this is always a bad thing. This is a good thing, right? Everyone's going to figure out the same thing. with so an angry, contentious woman. Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or uh, <laughs> it, one of them is not, uh, not you know, doing things with another man's wife. And it's, I mean, when you go to his house, don't flirt with his wife is what they're basically saying. They don't use the word flirt, but, and, and you mm -hmm. know, I think that that's good advice anywhere you go. Uh, and, <laughs> and most societies are going to figure that out. Uh, but some of the wording is so specific that it does make you think they they knew this stuff. And I'll give you actually another example. The savior 
uses wisdom literature quite a bit, but not the kind we, this is a kind we don't find in Proverbs very much, but it's really common in other wisdom literature. And it's, it has to do with maintaining social status in a way that works. So one of the big themes in Egyptian uh, wisdom literature is when you go to a, a, you're invited to a dinner, make sure you don't sit at the head of the table unless you're asked to go up there. It's better to sit in, in a lower position and be called up than to be in a higher position and, and to be asked to go sit in a lower position. And the Savior says the exact same thing, right? And, and he's, he's clearly familiar with wisdom literature. Either that's Israelite wisdom literature that we no longer have. Or he's just familiar with Egyptian wisdom literature. He grew up in Egypt for a while, but I don't know. Anyway, uh, this is uh, something that uh, the Savior is actually a number of times in the New Testament dispensing wisdom literature. That's cool. I didn't know that. I really like that. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, yeah. Carrie, where is that where the Savior teaches some wisdom literature? So one of the, the good examples, the one about where to sit at the table is uh, in Luke 14, verses 7 through 11 is one of the places where he, he goes through that. Oh, that's so cool. All right. So tell us about the structure of Proverbs. Is there a certain structure to it or is it just willy nilly? Kind of. It, well, it's a little bit of both. Um, mm -hmm. you, you've got some introductory chapters. I'd say chapters like one through nine are more introductory. Um, and uh, then you have it, it's kind of broken into sections like chapter 10 through 22 or, or so one through nine are Proverbs of Solomon, but it's kind of setting up a general theme that, that we should talk about in just a second. Then 10 through 22 are just all sorts of other Proverbs uh, of Solomon. And then uh, towards the end, we get like Lemuel and Agur, as we mentioned, uh, from 22 through 24 are like these long admonitions. They're less these little teeny sayings and, and more developing a theme and we get like uh, 25 through 29 is is kind of a, a unit that all goes together. So there's a little bit of a structure. But for the most part, the way you did it with your seminary classes is good a way to do this as any to just say, throw out some you like. And in fact, a lot of um, our Christian friends, uh, if they have study Bibles, they'll do a proverb a day, a psalm mm -hmm. a day and a proverb a day with whatever other reading they're doing. And I, I think there's something really valuable about that, to just take in a little bit from these Proverbs every day. Mm -hmm. There are also a, 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 some structures based on the poetic functions that you were talking about. So, for example, and, and Melinda kind of uh, touched on this, but the most common kind of proverb, well, let's talk actually about where the word comes from. Um, the, the word translated as proverb is mashal, and uh, it's, its root is to compare or comparison. And some of that is the idea that you um, you're comparing. It can be a pro, uh, like a, an allegory or a, a parable, right? You compare this to that. So like it's like an ant. Remember when Melinda told us that? Or you should be like an ant. Um, and uh, it, sometimes wine is personified and things like that. So you have that kind of comparison. But the more common kind of comparison is with wisdom and foolishness. So the most common type of poetic device in Proverbs is what we'd call antithetical parallelism, where you say, this is this, but this is this. So just as an example, um, in Proverbs chapter one, verse seven, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction, right? So you get that contrast or uh, chapter 10, verse one, a wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. Right. So it, it, this contrast is what we get most often. Um, but sometimes they use what we'd call synthetic parallelism, where you add one to the other. Right. Uh, if you do this and you do this, then that will work out really well for you. Uh, so just as an example, um, Proverbs chapter 22, verse six, this is a famous one. President Hinckley loved this one. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Right. So that's that that adding. So a lot of this comes from that that Michelle comparison. But if you dig deeper into the meaning of of Michelle, it has an aspect of of rulership to it. Right. So and some of that's the comparison that this person is higher than this person. And so he's the ruler. But but the underlying idea then is that we should be ruled. Our lives should be ruled by these comparisons that they're making. And in the end, the theme in Proverbs is that it should be ruled by wisdom. And what is wisdom? Wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And that theme's worth discussing just a little bit, if it's all right, just because we struggle with the idea of fearing the Lord. But that is the major theme of Proverbs. It's, it's the beginning of, of uh, wisdom is the fear of the Lord is a proverb, right? Uh, mm -hmm. 
Proverbs chapter one, verse seven, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. We just said that one, didn't we? Mm -hmm. um, so the, that idea of fearing God is important. And, and we say, well, we don't want to fear God, but, but fear has a lot to do with, it's a, it's a bigger, more important idea than we think. And some of this is because we've watered Jehovah down to being a warm, fuzzy person. When this is an awe-inspiring, majestic person, when most people see an angel or the Lord, the first thing that has to be told them is fear not, because that being is so majestic, it does inspire fear in, in a reverence kind of way. It's it's awesome, uh, but awesome is also awful, right? They, they both come from that thing, but th that the inspi inspiration of awe mm -hmm. also makes that comparison. It puts us in our place in comparison with who that is, right? So I, I can remember um, a couple of times my children, uh, like I give them uh, some kind of rule, like, okay, we're going to cross the street, but you need to do it this way or at this time. And then they weren't doing it. And afterwards I'd say, why not? Well, I was afraid of this. And I'd say, no, you need to be more afraid of not doing what I say than of that, because I told you this to keep you safe. That you have to be afraid to not do that. And, and I think that's the kind of thing that the Lord is looking for. If it's all right, I'd like to read a quote from, um, from Elder Bednar um, from the April 2015 General Conference. And he says this, The righteous fear I am attempting to describe encompasses a deep feeling of reverence, respect, and awe for the Lord Jesus Christ. And anticipation, oh, sorry, for the Lord Jesus Christ, obedience to his commandments, and anticipation of the final judgment and justice at his hand. Thus, godly fear grows out of a correct understanding of the divine nature and mission of the Lord Jesus Christ, a willingness to submit our will to his will, and a knowledge that every man and woman will be accountable for his or her own sins in the day of judgment. So the idea, I think, is that we have such a healthy respect for who God is in comparison with us. We realize so much his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that he knows what is going on, and that the blessings that come for following him are so great, and the consequences for not following him are so terrible that we want to, out of a, 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 a fear and a love combined, they're, they're, they're tied together, we want to just do his will. And that is the beginning of wisdom. When that's how you feel and think, wisdom will flow from there. That's right. Can I ask you one thing, Carrie, that in my studies, it looks to me like there are actually two different Hebrew words for fear. One, um, and, and you can clarify my pronunciation, but Yurak and Pahad. And that one is more fear of the Lord and one is more fear of evil. And it seems like it's used very consistently throughout Proverbs, which one it's pulling from and which one it's using in, in English. It's just one word, fear. And that's where I think we get yeah. a little fuzzy on this. But I think maybe if you were reading it in its original language, you might recognize the two difference and then how they interplay with each other. Is that yeah, correct? and yeah, and and um, the, the fear of the Lord is uh, used consistently in Proverbs. Those two words are not used as consistently for different things elsewhere, although they often are, but not not a hundred percent of the time. Okay. okay, thanks. Wow, that was a good question, Melinda. That was good. Take it out if you want. No, I liked that. That was cool. Okay. And, you know, I like Carrie. I liked how you put it into the perspective of parenting because how many times do you get mad at your child for not listening to you when you knew the outcome before it happened? Yeah. And that that really struck me because I think Heavenly that's exactly how Heavenly Father parents. Like he he is preventative. And he's also triage, which I've talked about before on the podcast. It seems like in my marriage, I'm more preventative. My husband's triage, like I'm <laughs> trying to set everything up so my kids don't get hurt. And my husband's like, let's just see what happens and we'll fix it. Yeah. And um, now I'm looking at this like, wow, the God, I, I just love that our heavenly parents are both. They're combined. They've already sent us down here with this preventative measure and they'll be there when we mess up. But that fear, yeah, we should be more afraid of not doing what they asked us to do because of the outcome. Um, but fear in an awesome way. I think that is what's so cool. So thanks for yeah. pointing that out and connecting all of that. That was so yeah. cool. Very it's good. just because we realize how amazing God is and how much he yeah. loves us. Well, and I think yeah, we've kind I of gotten a little like... casual in the way we approach God almost. Some, yeah. Like lately, we, we really don't have that awe, that fear of him. And, and we kind of need to get back to that. Yeah. yeah kind of a one-of-a-kind unique sort of love we're talking mm -hmm. about it's really love yeah. yeah but an awesome 
reverent type of love. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways, it's that love that like uh, a young child has for a mother or father because both they know they take care of them and because that parent can do amazing things that the child doesn't realize that they would ever be able to do, right? It seems so far beyond their reach. Um, and uh, little children have that. Teenagers don't have that, right? It's, it's a different thing. But we probably need to get back to that little child relationship yes. with God. And uh, and it's one of the things I hope comes out of studying the Old Testament. This is the book more than any other where we start to realize the might and majesty and power of God. And uh, I hope we can keep that at the same time that we remember that that we we need to remember Jesus is our elder brother. It's not a scriptural phrase, but it's an important idea and concept. And he's our advocate, but he is also Jehovah, the great, mighty, and powerful. Wow. Powerful. Thank awesome. you. Thank you, both of you. That was incredible. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 31. I am so excited about this chapter. Okay. I told you a little bit about it earlier. So here's something I wanted to just point out. In Proverbs chapter 31, this is called the proverb of a virtuous woman, and it starts in verse 10 and it ends in verse 31. Now, there is a poetic device that's used right here. This proverb is 22 verses long, and the reason why is that it is an acrostic poem. Many of us remember doing acrostic poems in elementary school. It's where you wrote your name down the side of a page, and then you had to write words that began with the letter of your name. And so whenever I teach this, I always laugh because I would write Tammy down the side, and then I would say, totally awesome, awesome again, <laughs> and would be marvelous, you know, like whatever. Yeah, yeah. So this is an acrostic poem, but it doesn't spell out anything specifically. It is the Hebrew alphabet beginning with A, Aleph, and ending with the last letter, Tav. And many scholars believe that it, the reason it was written in this style of poetry was so that it would be easy for people to remember or memorize because this is sung every Sabbath by a Jewish husband to his wife. To this day, it's called Eshet Chayil, and it is sung to his wife to remind her of how she can become a virtuous woman. And I just, my heart breaks because... <laughs> If you read it word for word that I would like, please don't sing that to me because you have to sew your own clothes and be an amazing cook. Oh, you have to make <laughs> the material you're going to sew your own clothing with. Um, verse 21, you can't be afraid of the snow. I, I would be like, wait, what? I don't. In fact, I remember reading this thinking that is going to make me virtuous. Verse 21, I'm out. I'm terrified of the snow. I don't want to drive in it. I don't like it. Um, if you go on to read it, she has a side gig where she brings in some money. Her husband is really well known. Her family is dressed super nice. Um, my favorite that I laugh, verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed, if only. Like there's just so many funny things about this that's, in English. That's usually when you get to your funeral. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. this is yeah. the end of your days, your death. So I decided I wanted to study and read this in Hebrew. And it really struck me when I went through verse by verse, what these verses mean and the symbolism that you can find in them. And we don't have time to go through every verse, but I'm going to just show you a couple that I think are really profound. We're going to start with verse 10, who can find a virtuous woman. And we've talked a ton about the word virtuous on this podcast. It is my, it's my thing. It's my soapbox, but the word virtuous in Hebrew, in Greek, in Latin, and in Spanish it only means one thing. And in Hebrew, it is chayil, and it means strength or power. The strength or power of an army. And anytime you add O-U-S to an English word, it is the way it is a suffix, sorry. The O-U-S is a suffix to English words, and it means to be filled with or full of. So now we have who can find a virtuous woman, a woman filled with or full of strength, for her price is far above rubies. And then verse 11, it says, the heart of her husband does safely trust in her. And for years, I thought that meant I had to be married in order to be virtuous. But I love the husband in this verse. The husband is Jesus Christ. Highlight that, write it above it. In fact, it's really cool. There are so many different references throughout the Old Testament that teaches us that Jesus is the husband. You can read that in Isaiah and Jeremiah. It's also in Matthew and in Revelation and in third Nephi, where the savior is referred to as the husband. And this might seem weird because you're like, wait, I'm married to Christ. Yes, you are. The moment you make a covenant, the first covenant you ever make at age eight, you become married to Jesus Christ. We are married to the savior through covenants. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland said this about this idea of the husband being Christ, he says, the imagery of Jehovah as the bridegroom and Israel or us as the bride 
is among the most commonly used metaphors in scripture, being used by the Lord and his prophets to describe the relationship between deity and the children of the covenant. And so it's really powerful to think, oh my gosh, wait a minute. If the husband is Christ, I married to him through covenants. Then this entire proverb is about a covenant relationship with her savior, Jesus Christ. And every verse is specific to what covenant keeping women are doing. It is not a long laundry list of things to do when you say I do. It's not things that women should start doing either. If you're a covenant keeping woman, you're already doing every single one of these verses. And it's just so freeing. I think like, oh, okay, I'm doing it. And what's so cool is at the end of verse 11, where it says, so that he shall have no need of spoil. Like he trusts in her and the reason, and then he says he has no need of spoil in her. This is so cool because we hear a lot out in our culture that we're enough. Women are enough. You're enough. And here, scripturally speaking, is where it teaches us this, because this idea of having no need of spoil and Carrie and Melinda, you know, this from studying the old Testament, anytime there would be an old Testament tribe that would fight against another at the end of that war, whoever prevailed was allowed to come in and take the spoils of war and add it to what they had. So it was in excess and spoils of war was food, clothing, animals, even people, Mm -hmm. jewels gold, silver, and they take it back to their village. And then it would become in excess to what they already had. And here the savior is saying, Oh, I don't need any more. All I need is a covenant keeping woman, because that's enough. A covenant keeping woman is enough. Yeah. Tammy, can I just also point out that I think, um, one of the beauties of recognizing that the husband is our savior, Jesus Christ, is that it helps us recognize that this is what it means to be a virtuous human, a virtuous anyone, like not just a woman, right? Like it applies every bit as much to every man or boy or young man reading and and thinking about this page and this proverb as every, all the women doing it. Right. And sometimes we pigeonhole it into being about women. And there are some wonderful takeaways that really specifically speak to some of the unique challenges that women face, but it is for everybody. And, and that's super important, I think. And, and if it's all right, I'd love to both agree and just push back just a teeny bit, but not really because it's, it's agreeing. I just want to make sure we highlight this, not with Melinda, but with, with uh, something Tammy said. I, 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 I think our culture, you're right, keeps saying, I'm enough, I'm enough. Mm-hmm. And uh, in point of fact, none of us are enough on our own. The reason that you're enough here is because you're in that covenant relationship with Christ that you're talking about, right? So if you're, if you are in a relationship with Christ and you are trying to keep your covenant, then you're enough because he makes up the difference. You don't have to worry about what you're not if you're in that relationship, but we do need to know if we're not in that relationship, then we've got a problem. We're, we're never going to be enough. And so quit trying to be enough and focus on the relationship. (laughs) Exactly. And it's interesting, like it's not talking about your boyfriend, it's talking about your husband, like you're committed, right? Mm -hmm. You actually are are in a covenant relationship and that's inherent in the way it describes us. So that's such a great point, Carrie. I love that. And and maybe I'll just even tie this back in if it's all right with with the idea of of helpmate. Um, mm. And if you're interested, I had an interview with uh, Rebecca Call on, on my podcast right at the beginning of the year about Help Me that I thought was so fascinating. She's doing her dissertation on that phrase. Um, but the idea is that neither husband or wife are up to what's in front of them without the other. All right. Mm-hmm. Now, Christ is up to what's in front of him without us. But still, that the idea is that in this covenant relationship, he's our helpmeet. Right. With him, we are enough. And so that that metaphor of the marriage just continues to be wonderful in in what you're exploring here. So thank you for that. Well, and what's so fascinating to me about this is that in that covenant relationship, like you just pointed out to us, Carrie, going back to the word virtuous, is that it's through our covenants that we are filled with power, with his power. Mm -hmm. Elder Mm -hmm. Christofferson said, What is the source of moral and spiritual power and how do we obtain it? The source is God. Our access to that power is through covenants with him. That is that right there. And so who can find a virtuous woman saying who can find a woman filled with Christ's power because she's keeping her covenants. And then of course, in verse 12, she will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. And she will do that throughout the rest of this proverb. It is so awesome to think Melinda, just like you said, 
it's for women and for men, because as we know in scripture, woman is often personified as Christ's people. And so this proverb absolutely is for women and for men. In the book that I wrote about this proverb, I specifically address it to women, but there is a paragraph where I say, let's be clear. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. This is for all of us because we all want to be filled with Christ's power. We all want to be covenant keepers. And, and I like how you said, Carrie, that if we're not on that path, let's get back to that because Christ is the only one who can make us whole. He's the only one who can make us enough. I thought that was really cool the way you put that, especially in light of a lot of times when I give this talk, you can see in the eyes of people thinking, well, I probably have to be a perfect covenant keeper. I probably have to make sure I'm doing everything spot on 100%. And it goes back into this idea of I am, because when you talk about how are you doing in your covenants, if you go to the very first covenant you make at baptism, are you mourning with those that mourn? Are you comforting those who stand in need of comfort? And in your mind, you're probably saying, I am, I think I am, I hope I am. And that phrase, I am, is the Savior's name. And you're answering in his name, I am trying. Mm-hmm. And so then what's cool is the breakdown of I am in Hebrew really is, I will become who I will become. Yeah. And so when we take that into context with this proverb, I am trying, I am becoming who God sent me here to become. And verses 13 through 31 are going to show me how to do it. 13 through 31 is what I'm doing my best at and where I'm trying. And so it's, it's really so cool to think at the very beginning, we can always take a big breath. Everybody out there, you do not have to be really good at sewing or making your own food. There is so much more to it. So, and it's so much of that word too, that has been incorporated so beautifully into our temple recommend discussion questions about striving. It's really striving. You're trying. I love that. I am trying. Or or section 46, uh, where it's really talking about blessings that you get from keeping the covenant, but because it's just talking about for obedience. And it says it's for him who obeys and him who seeketh so to do. All of these blessings are for the ones who are seeking, who are trying, they're giving it their best shot. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and then we just, we're going to go over verse 21 real quick, because that's um, my Perfect. favorite one, because you're like, wait a minute, you can't be afraid of the snow. So here it goes. Verse 21 reads, she is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. Now, many scholars outside of our religion who have tried to study this proverb, what I did read was they said she can't be, she really can't be afraid of the snow and she dresses her family really well. It could mean that truly, or If you want to go deeper, it could mean this, that snow oftentimes in scripture is a symbolism of death. It's the end of the year and things die when snow falls on them. And so she's not afraid of death, spiritual or physical for her household, for all her household is clothed in scarlet. And the color scarlet is a symbolism of the atonement of Jesus Christ. And so now when you read this for us, We are not afraid of death, physical or spiritual for our household, for all our household is clothed or covered in the atonement of Jesus Christ. They have a, we have a testimony of that and we share it with our family and our friends and our children. And they are covered in that knowledge so that when disaster strikes, when death comes, we know the plan of salvation, the plan of happiness and how it all works out. So that's what verse 21 means to me. <laughs> Perfect. So beautiful. According to Hebrew. Yeah. And, and, and I think you're right. Absolutely. Whether it's physical or spiritual preparation, the point of that verse is you don't have to be afraid. Mm-hmm. Well, we could say it this way. If you are prepared, you shall not fear. Right. right. You just said it so perfectly. Yep. That's right. Tammy, I love how in your book, you make the connection to the stripling warriors too. And that they didn't. And what you write is that they weren't afraid of battle because of course their mothers had taught them and they had no doubt God would deliver them. I just think you you do that so well. This is one of my favorite chapters in your book too. Oh, thank you. Well, and then I share a story about my neighbor whose um, sweet little two-year-old passed away and the experience I had with her. But I'll never forget the moment when I sat in that cemetery or in the funeral parlor, I should say, we went the night before the cemetery, we went the night before the funeral and we just sat together in that room with this little baby and she held this baby in her arms. And it was so emotional for me because I thought she had every right to just fall on her knees and yell at God and be so mad. And she didn't, she just hugged this little baby and she praised God's name throughout that whole experience that evening. 
And it struck me because then I realized she is the personification of this. She is not afraid of snow and her whole household is clothed in scarlet. It doesn't mean it was easy. Oh, it was hard. It was so hard. But in that moment, she was able to testify of the graciousness of God and his plan for all of us. And that that's what it looked like to me. And I, I've seen throughout my book, I've seen every verse in women that I know, and I share a personal story. Like I tell you what it means in Hebrew, but then I tell you what it looks like in real life. And after you read that real life, I don't know, maybe Melinda, you read it, but I feel like after you read the real life story, you're like, oh, I can do that. I am doing that. Right. It's so beautifully written. And I just have to take this one second to just to quote you, because what you say and how you summarize it, I think is so beautiful about your neighbor, Tammy. You say, Tammy clothed us in her testimony of Jesus Christ's power to overcome death of the father's unfailing plan of happiness, even when it wasn't so happy. It's beautiful. So beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's Proverbs 31. That's all the time we have to talk about it because I could talk about it forever. It's now my favorite proverb. And I just think we need to study it now and read it. And we're going to reframe the way we've always taught it. And it makes us all feel so much better about ourselves. And it makes being a covenant keeper doable. It's not overwhelming. It's actually the most beautiful thing we could be doing in our life. And going back to what you talked about, Carrie, fearing the Lord, it, it just ties right into it beautifully. And then you think about the woman who had the issue of blood. And when the savior says, I felt virtue go out of me. Like he mm-hmm. felt power, he felt strength leave him through a woman who believed. And so it's, it's really, really powerful. So, and, and I love how you've, oh, thank you. I, I was just gonna say, I love how you've taken both in your book and talking with the seer, you've taken proverbs that could seem abstract and you've made it so real for us right. and so applicable in our lives. That's, that's just powerful. That was my goal. So thank you. Okay. So in the next segment, we're going to dive into Ecclesiastes and boy, I hope Carrie and Melinda can make me a lover of this book because I am not.